functional podcast. I am Ivy, the younger sister, and my fact of the day is that even though I love me some escapism, I really do, what I hate is anything that has to do with zombies. And it's not even because I'm afraid of zombies. I just straight up think zombie stuff is stupid, and I will never understand how that whole like zombie culture thing took off and everybody was super obsessed with it for a few years. I think you've just offended like 90% of American culture. I'm just saying with your fact of the day. So <laughs> I'm sorry. I just don't get it. Like to each their own. That's it's fine. If people like it, I just don't understand it at all. I don't understand the appeal like on any level. It's not scary to me. It's not interesting to me. Like I just don't understand the appeal. Maybe I'm the stupid one. <laughs> Well, randomly, they say, like, the, the thing that really catches the mass market appeal is actually, um, it, it speaks to underlying cultural things that are going on. So, like, the big alien stuff that was going on back in the 50s and 60s actually spoke more to the Cold War with Russia and the fears underlying it. And so they say that the zombies and the reason they're so popular now really speaks to the fact that they're afraid that the culture is falling apart, that people are, like, losing their ability to think and they're just becoming mindless. And so it speaks to the underlying bit of society and so the fact that you see the reality of what society is maybe that's why you hate it so much because you're like don't don't color it up don't make it pretty or amusing it is what it is bitches it is what it is uh, I think it's also that, like I look at that and I'm like but that's always been the case like this is that's not <laughs> new societies like if you look back throughout history civilizations rise and fall because humans overall have not really evolved that much we still do lots of stupid things when we get together in groups there's always a society somewhere that is collapsing always <laughs> so you figured it out sooner than everybody so now you can judge them for their lack of knowing it <laughs> no, i'm just kidding <laughs> Maybe that is what it is. Maybe I am just a super judgmental person. And I also find zombie visuals is really disgusting. They totally are. So, okay. I am Autumn, the uh, older sister. You know, every time I get confused about which sister I am. Like, I know that I'm the older sister, but every time I'm like, and I am the, what the fuck am I? Um, I think it comes because of the fact I've always considered myself a middle child, but like John's not here and so I'm always like wait where do I fit in things so yes I'm the older sister anyways my fact of the day has nothing to do with zombies today um, my fact of the day is actually that I cannot consistently crack an egg okay so I eat a lot of eggs I say I probably have cracked at least one egg on average every day for the past 30 years and when I go to crack the egg I can't consist. I, I either tap it so light it will like not even crack the shell or I will like end up Hulk smashing the thing onto the counter like just the shell and the yolk and everything just smushed. <laughs> I, I don't know what my dealio is. I don't know if it's the proprioception thing that goes with autism or whatnot, but cannot consistently crack an egg. I don't know if it has to do with that or not, because I don't think that I'm on the autism spectrum, but I also have experiences with that. 
And I thought I was doing a lot better about it. And then yesterday, I just, I thought I was tapping the egg on the counter. And instead, I smashed it so hard that my hand went through the shell and like smashed the yolk against the counter. And I just stood there for a second with my hand sitting in egg goop thinking, what the fuck just happened? How did I do that? I was really certain that was just a light tap. That ha that had to have been a really fragile egg, right? That was not on me. Because I did the first two okay. I only did the first two okay. And then the third one, just like, ah! Yes, is Hawks like I I tap mine on the corner of the counter, like the edge of the counter, and my dogs always get really excited because they know it's a 50-50 shot at whether or not it's gonna end up on the floor. <laughs> so that's happened before. I've actually cracked it, they were too excited right underneath the egg on my dog's head. So that's happened. Yeah, it it like applies to other like okay, I was shaking a salad one time, right? So to get the dressing evenly coated, you put it in a little Tupperware dish, you put the lid on, you shake the salad. And my mind is saying, shake lightly, shake lightly, shake lightly. My hands did not get the message. I ended up launching the salad so hard, like over my head, still managed to hold the container, but the lid popped off. The salad went flying all over the kitchen. Yeah, what my mind says is not what my, I don't know where the communication issue is, but no, I'm, I'm totally, Yeah. I don't get it either, but it, it, it is like your your mind-body connection just glitches out from time to time. <laughs> it just is a thing that happens. There was you remember that time? Were you there? I don't remember if you were there or if I just told you about it, but while I was still living in Oklahoma, I walked out of my bedroom once and like into the hallway and directly across from my bedroom door was a fucking wall. And I just walked through my bedroom door face first into the wall. Like I wasn't distracted. I wasn't looking at my phone. I don't know what the hell happened. I just walked face first into the wall and just kind of like stumbled backward. It was like, okay. okay well, that's, that's not where the kitchen is. Apparently. <laughs> I do remember you telling me about that. I, so yeah, I relate to that though. Like, okay. So I was walking out of a, a little store one time, you know, the, basic mini mall stores they have the glass doors that have the metal around them and you pull the handle to walk out i still to this day don't know if it was me or the door pulled it like just pulled it to go into this little store ripped the whole door off of the hinges and this is like a metal <laughs> door and i'm like okay that can't have been me right because it's like it's now dangling by like one little corner of the top hinge and i'm like okay then i'm just gonna I, what do you do at that point? I just fucking ripped your door off your hinges. <laughs> I, what did you do? <laughs> did you just like turn tail and run? <laughs> like what? Just like sorry over your shoulder as you're like running away. <laughs> no, I, I awkwardly said sorry, and of course they rushed out. And I love because they assumed it was their fault in their door, and I let them believe that because you know that logically makes sense. But part of me still wonders: was it the door? Or did I all of a sudden just channel my inner Hulk and rip the door off the hinges? Because I don't know, because I cannot trust my body. So. Maybe that's maybe that's what it is. Maybe you actually have like superpowers, but they're only there sometimes. It like it turns on and off like a switch and you just never know when it's going to happen. And it's not consistent enough for you to feel certain of your superpowers or to be able to learn how to control them. Maybe that's what it is. 
So why is it, if we both have this, then why is it that both of us are like, we should then channel the superpower with eggs because that seems to be the biggest <laughs> thing. Just like all of a sudden, let's test it with the egg. Boom. Yep. Still works. I, I don't know. I don't think I have superpowers. I think I'm just really clumsy or there's some weird disconnect between my mind and body. Cause like where you were apparently strong enough to rip a door off the hinges, I just walk into walls. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think that's a superpower. I don't know what that is. Well, what I'm if you're sure it's not a superpower? Maybe your body was testing to see if you could walk through walls. I mean, if you never try, <laughs> how do you know? And like, as much as you don't pay attention to your surroundings, for all you know, maybe you walk through walls all the time and you just happen to like tune in at the second being like, why am I walking into a wall? And so your body freaked out and didn't let you walk through it. But actually you can walk through walls. You don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I pay attention to my surroundings a lot because I'm like a paranoid person. So I, I, I don't know. I, I will never understand how I did that. It is still a very embarrassing thing to me to this day. Like how, how does a grown adult looking at the wall and just walk face first into it? Like I actually like smushed my nose against the wall. Like I wish I had bigger boobs because they would have protected me, you know, protected my face. But I don't have I don't have those airbags there. So instead I just like smushed right in the face and I just like stumbled back. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, none of this has anything to do with our topic of the day. Like I'm sitting here trying to think of any transition. There's none. So I'm just gonna go and our topic of the day. So in our last episode. We talked about depression and the lived experience of depression and what that's like. And obviously, Ivy and I are doing pretty good today and don't sound overly depressed. And I would say that's pretty accurate. And in part, that's because, here's my transition, that is in part because we have spent many years learning how to cope with depression. And so actually today, that is the focus of our episode. It is on how to cope with depression. And, you know, just a reminder going into this, we are not therapists. We're not mental health professionals. We're not licensed. We're not any of that stuff. And so everything we're talking about today is just what we have done to cope with depression and what our loved ones and friends have shared with us that they do. And so we're not giving this out there as this is what you should do when you're depressed because Ivy and I try our best to never tell anybody to do anything because that's not us. We're just saying, hey, if you've been in this sucky situation, here's some shit we've done. Maybe it'll help you too. So let's dive into today's topic of coping with depression. Throw on the ball to Ivy. Bam. Thank you for just throwing that to me. It probably hit me in the face too if it was a real ball. Okay. Um, we are just going to start out super, super basic here with just kind of like environmental things and routine based things. So we're going to start out talking about taking care of yourself when you are depressed and also as a preventative measure to kind of help you maybe steer clear of some of those depressive episodes. So first up is diet. And I will say that this one is really, really important for me being bipolar type two, I did not want to be on medication. I had just kind of accepted that I would be miserable and depressed my entire life. And I learned about the bipolar diet and I at first didn't think that there was anything to it. 
because I didn't really believe in the power of food to affect your mood until I learned more about the interactions between gut health and mental health. So I started shifting my diet and I started eliminating certain foods that were supposed to be triggers in general for people who are bipolar. And the main ones that they started out with were like sugar, gluten, dairy, and soy. And I started noticing that as I cut those things either out of my diet completely or I minimized the amount of those things that I ate, I felt a lot better. Now diet has become a super important thing for me in managing my mental health. I notice if I go too many days eating kind of not so great, like if I have sugar too many days in a row, or if I have dairy or gluten or whatever too many days in a row, I'm so in tune now with how my mental health responds to certain types of food that I can immediately identify like, oh, I'm starting to get depressed because I couldn't leave the bread alone for three days. It's that much of a important factor in my life. How has, has diet been effective for you in depression, Autumn? For me, I know it's just a big thing of eating regularly. I have a lot of blood sugar issues. And so I will start having blood sugar dips if I don't eat regularly enough. And yeah, you get that that low lethargic. But when I do that for a few days in a row, like I am too busy and I skip breakfast, it somehow cumulatively adds up. And I've actually noticed a lot of people that do struggle with mental health also struggle with digestive issues, food sensitivities, and other diet things. And Part of that is, and there's a ton of research really, I think over the last 10 years have really come out, talk about, you know, the, the gut brain axis and how important digestion is to mental health. And my, my health coach actually, she was messaged me the other day and she let me know that she said, did you know that you produce 90% of serotonin in your gut? And so if you're really aware of mental health, you know that serotonin plays a big part of depression. Well, think about that. 90% of your serotonin is coming from your gut. Holy crap. You know what I mean? I mean, that just really speaks to how important diet is. Like we want to just put it off and like, oh, do I really need the vegetables or, but I really like gluten. But if it's going to increase your ability to deal with depression or potentially eliminate so many of the symptoms or so many of the factors or the contributing issues, how amazing would it be if you can change your diet and you can do those things? So I, I really think that diet is very vital to not just helping with depression, but definitely preventing how significant the depression is and how long it lasts, I think. I mean, that's me personally. It's so interesting to me that for so many years, I never thought that there would be a correlation between the things that you eat and your mental health. I look back on that now and I'm like, well, duh, of course it would, because what you fuel your body with is what it's going to run on. And that's going to, what you eat is going to affect your biochemistry. And so the more things that I've learned about it, the more convinced I am of the importance of diet. To be fair, I think a lot of people are not really aware of that yet because it's still the study of like the microbiome and the impact of gut health on every other aspect of your health. That's still a relatively young study. Like we have only really in like maybe the last 15 years started doing deep dives, scientifically doing studies and trying to understand this stuff, that's really only been a fairly recent thing. Like we're still learning so many new things about our gut health and our microbiome and how that affects every other part of our health. So it, it does make sense that it would affect your mental health. But I think that's such a 
young concept still to a lot of people because I think before in the past it was kind of I don't know maybe thought of as like uh old wives tales type stuff and not really all that important and we have western medicine now but it, it really is so important and we're starting to see more and more science backing up the idea that what you eat drastically impacts your mental health and and you'll notice that ivy and i aren't really telling you like what to eat or what diet or encouraging any specific diet because I, I really believe, and I think Ivy does too, that this is really specific to you. Everybody reacts differently to different foods. You know, I can't handle dairy, but maybe somebody else can. Ivy and I can't do sugar, but maybe you do great with a lot of fruit. You really have to curtail it to your body. And I think part of the reason that we don't hear about diet is, yes, it is so new, but especially in our Western culture, especially in America, we're a, we're a Band-Aid health system and we're not about preventive care at all. And that's what diet is. It's really that preventive piece. And we don't get a lot of information about anything that's not going to make pharmaceutical companies money, essentially. And I think that ties into one of the other ways of taking your care of yourself is supplements. Because the reality is for a lot of us, you can't afford organic food. I don't know about you, but I can't. I do not have the income to afford organic this and farm fresh that. I'm working towards a lifestyle where I can have a garden and I can grow that. But until then, I'm eating whatever pesticide, genetically modified, whatever's out there because otherwise I can't afford to eat. And part of what that means then is supplements. And that's what that means. It means to supplement your diet. And I think that's a big piece of it is when your diet is a little off, you can step in with those supplements and find a way to improve that way. I, I do think you want to do as much as you can with diet, but if you can't, leaning more towards those things. And, you know, that's not even just vitamins, but we're also talking about herbs and minerals and enzymes. There's a whole world out there. And Ivy actually does a lot of her mental health balance with supplements. You know, she said again and again, she's not on medication. She is on supplements. Do you want to talk a little bit to those, Ivy? One of the things that I want to point out when we're talking about supplements, just like when we're talking about diet, th there is no one size fits all because it's so dependent on you. Every person's body is very complex. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. There's a lot of environmental factors. There's a lot of genetic factors. There's a lot involved in that. So what works for one person is not necessarily going to work for another person. And with supplements, sometimes it's not even about limited access to food. Sometimes it is literally that your body is not capable of processing and assimilating some of those nutrients on its own, or at least not very well. And that was one of the things that I've learned for myself too is that a few years ago, because I had changed my diet and everything already, and I'd been stable for a couple of years and things were going pretty good. And then all of a sudden I just crashed and it was bad and I couldn't figure out what was going on. So I eventually ended up going to a naturopath and there were a few things that were going on. But one of the things that she helped me to identify was that I had a gene mutation. Some of you out there probably also have this gene mutation or at least familiar with it. And I think a lot of us that have this mutation refer to it as the motherfucker gene um, because it is such a motherfucker to deal with when things go wrong. But one of the, the things that happens with it, and I'm not going to speak to it a whole lot because I'm a little rusty on my knowledge of all of it. But one of the things that happens with it that really affected me is that it, because of that mutation, I was not able to process 
B vitamins very well. So I was on a, I was lacking in B vitamins. And even when I would take B vitamins, my body would freak out and I would have anxiety attacks and stuff like that. So I just didn't take anything. And I didn't know what that was from until I met with my naturopath and she identified that. And so now one of the things that I am on is like basically these B vitamins that are kind of specially formulated to be more easily assimilated by my body so that my body can actually make use of them. What part of the reason why that B vitamin stuff is really important for somebody who's bipolar is because a lot of people who are bipolar have difficulty balancing those, those neurotransmitters. And some of those neurotransmitters are very heavily reliant on amino acids. And so those are building blocks of proteins. And if your moods are heavily dependent on those amino acids, you need to be able to assimilate those amino acids and be able to uptake them from your diet. And I was not able to do that properly because a lot of those amino acids, in order for those to be processed, you need B vitamins to be able to process them because that's how the chemistry of stuff works. It's built on each other. It's domino effects. It's this thing is required in order to properly uptake this thing. And so it gets really, really complicated and different people are set up in different ways. So for me, it made such a huge difference when I was put on this particular supplement. I can't even describe. It was like one day I had bipolar and then like two weeks later, it was almost like I'd never had it at all. And that's not to say that I don't still have ups and downs with it, but it's it's made a huge difference in my life. And yeah, I mean, people will say, well, you're still dependent on something. And I will say that, yeah, that particular thing I am still dependent on, but it doesn't have any negative side effects, which is part of why I like it, which is part of why I choose it over medication. I get all of the positive benefits. I don't get any negative side effects from it. And all that this is doing is helping my body to make proper use of the nutrients that I take in and helping me to get a little boost on those nutrients that my body would not normally be able to absorb from just food alone. So that's why I think supplements are a really important thing. I do think, however, though, that you should, if you are wanting to go that route, you should definitely consult with somebody who can help you figure out what's going on with your body first so that they can help you figure out what supplements you actually need to be taking. It can be kind of sticky trying to figure that out yourself because I've done that before too, where I made the mistake of trying to do that. And fish oil is supposed to be great, but there are some people that have a paradoxical effect. And when they're bipolar and they happen to have that paradoxical effect, it sends you spiraling into a mixed episode. And I almost had a psychotic break. So <laughs> I would caution you to be very careful about playing around with supplements just because it's not a controlled substance and just because it's not a medication does not mean that it cannot have negative effects if you don't know what you're doing. That's that's very true. If you can get somebody that you trust, a naturopath, a, a functional health coach, um, that's actually what I'm working right now as a functional health coach because that's what I could afford. Anything you can do, if not, do a lot of your research and really, really vet what you're doing and try to only do one thing at a time if you don't have a lot of guidance with it, because these things really can mess you up. And if you are on any kind of medication, psychotropic medication especially, I would highly caution you to work with a, a professional on this because supplements can interact with psychotropic meds.
St. John's wort is one of the most common ones you hear thrown out with depression. And there's a lot of mixed results with that. Well, part of the problem is St. John's wort interacts with a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of medications, even, even things like birth control. Because of how it's processed through the liver, it can make your birth control less effective. Okay, so it interacts with a lot of things. And the St. John's wort is playing with your serotonin. And so if the St. John's wort is playing with your serotonin and you're also on a migraine medication or a ser you know selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor such as Prozac or Effexor, something along those lines that's playing with your serotonin, all of a sudden you got three, four, five cooks in the kitchen playing with your serotonin. And that can get very scary very fast. So like Ivy said, just because it's not regulated does not mean this stuff isn't potent, does not mean you shouldn't know what you're doing. And you also really need to vet the supplement companies you work with. Um, in the United States, the regulations, they're, they're there and there's a lot of safety. And I would say most of these things are safe, but the efficacy of it, how effective it is, is is mixed you know what kind of uh vitamins do they use are they processed through this are they processed through that where are they based what are they doing to make sure the percentages they say on there are accurate so you also want to be able to vet your supplement companies and that is one place where a, a health a health coach practitioner or a naturopath can help you is they can point you towards those dietary supplement companies that are definitely effective and have quality products and for those of you that don't know the word paradoxical effect and what that means, because Ivy threw that out there, and I was just thinking about that when she was talking about paradoxical effects, you basically have an opposite reaction of what you should have. So for a lot of people, the fish oil actually has the more calming effect and it does great things for your mental health. In her, it caused serious, significant issues. I also have that with a lot of supplements. Again, it goes into that digestion and that that brain gut axis. A lot of us that have mental health issues have an imbalance in there. And so we are more susceptible, not everybody will, but we are more susceptible to having those paradoxical effects. So something that should help like B vitamins ends up causing harm. And that's because our system a lot of times doesn't know what to do with it and it's just not programmed to process it right. So supplements are great, but take it with caution. Along those lines, diet supplement. You know, the other big one, exercise. Everybody loves to tell you to exercise. This one is one of the most commonly encouraged things in in any field when it comes to, to depression and dealing with depression, helping prevent depression, exercise. And this is always the one for me that I've always groaned the most about. Because if you've been depressed or you are depressed and somebody says, well, you should exercise. Do you not just look at them and roll your eyes? I'm like, do you not get that I'm having trouble getting out of bed? Do you not get that every breath I take is impossibly just exhausting to me. And now you want me to get up out of bed and jump around and flop around like some sort of stupid dead fish so that assumedly it can help me in a few months. I, I totally get with you if you hate exercise, especially when you're depressed. And so when it comes to exercise, my trick with it is is tricking myself. Okay. I do not, I call it flopping around like a dead fish. I hate aerobics. I hate doing things like that. I feel like an idiot and I don't want to do it. And it's not rewarding in the moment. It's rewarding over time, but not right now. And so I find ways to trick myself. I, I am very lucky in that I've 
you know, live on my homestead. And so I exercise through splitting wood or taking hikes. This can also be playing with your dogs or playing with your kids. If you're depressed and you want to increase your exercise, which you really should because it does help so much and there's a shit ton of scientific studies out there to back it, find ways to trick yourself and find ways to make it rewarding in the moment. And maybe if you're one of those people that gets rewarded by it in the moment because you're weightlifting or yoga, great for you. Definitely stick on it. But if you're one of the people like me that struggles and just kind of wants to sit on your ass until you merge and become one with the couch, <laughs> try, try to trick yourself into it. Do you have any thoughts on exercise, Ivy? This is not one that I particularly struggle with, at least not anymore, because I have found it to be so rewarding, both in the moment, both in the moment and long term, if I can just get myself going. But I think the the main things that I would suggest is like, if you have a hard time getting yourself to exercise, start small. A lot of times the mistake that people make, and not just with exercise for mental health, but exercise for anything, is that people tend to go really hard for a short period of time and then get overwhelmed and get really sore and then they just give up on it. I think it's really important to just start small especially if you're one of those people who's prone to overdoing it and then burning out really quickly, learn to pace yourself. And I think the other really important thing is finding something that you actually like doing. And that may take a while to do because different people will have different kinds of reactions and responses to different types of activity. I hate cardio. I fucking hate it so much. It is not fun for me. It is not enjoyable. It's not even a love-hate relationship. It's just pure hate. I hate cardio. I do a little bit of it because I know it's good for me, but it is not my exercise of choice. I've tried other things too. I tried yoga, which was, eh, it was okay, uh, but it, it, it didn't really appeal to me either. I did not start really enjoying exercise until I discovered weightlifting. And for whatever reason, and I'm not even entirely sure why, I really latched onto it and I really enjoy it. And there's enough reward in it for me that it makes me want to continue doing it. And the longer I do it, the healthier I feel, the stronger I feel, the less body pain that I have, and the more improved my mental health is, both from the you know, biochemical reactions that I'm getting as a result of the exercise, but then also from the improved overall health and just physical capability that I'm getting from it too. But it took me quite a while. Like it took me years to find something that I actually enjoyed doing. I had to bounce around to several different activities until I found something I actually liked well enough that I could do it consistently. And I think that's a really important thing for anybody is to find something that you just like doing. And focus on that. Maybe later you can try out different things to kind of balance things out a little bit more, get different types of activity. Like I hate cardio. I still tack it on at the end of my, my weightlifting routine because I know it's good for me to do it. But I think it's really important just to find something that you enjoy doing enough that you can convince yourself to do it. And then the rewards will start to build on themselves until you get into a habit and you'll actually want to do it because you get enough positive reward from it. And and like I said, it doesn't have to be exercise. Like I hate that word. It doesn't have to be cardio or weightlifting or yoga. Think of it more as just activity, getting active. 
I mean, if you've got a Wii or a PlayStation Move or one of those new 3D things and you're playing a video game, but you're up and you're standing and you're moving, that's active. If you're out there with your kid and you're pushing them on the swing, that's activity. So any way you can find to increase activity. Yes, ideally, exercise, if you can find one especially that you like is great, but start with that activity. Just start with getting active, getting moving, and build it up from there. Because that's the thing with depression, right, is anything is almost impossible to do. Everything feels exhausting. So start small with all of this. And then when you do get the periods where you're feeling better, try to build those habits then. Build that healthy diet. Build that healthy exercise habit. Get that supplement regimen when you're feeling better because it's easier to start those habits then. And then one more thing on the take care of yourself before we move on is cleanliness okay and i struggle i struggle with this a lot but i do think it is really vital to helping with depression both when you're experiencing it and preventing it and this is cleanliness of both yourself and your environment and i'm not saying things need to be spick and span my house is i don't think my house has ever been spick and span it was spick and span maybe when we were first building it and there was like no floor, so we couldn't even have a nail on it yet. But <laughs> there's there's never been spick and span in my house. But I do try to declutter. And I do notice that when I don't declutter and I let things go for a week or two weeks, I start getting depressed and the environment feels shitty. And I get a lot of dust build up and I feel like I can't breathe. And so if you can start finding ways to keep your environment clean and keep yourself clean. I know it's hard. I know it is hard when you feel depressed to get a shower, to brush your teeth, to do those kinds of things. But if you can find a way to do it, do it. And if you need to set the bar low, set that bar low. Maybe you brush your teeth once a week, not every day. You know what? You're getting them brushed at some point. It's something. Maybe you're just using a Listerine mouthwash. It's something. Again, and with the showers, I know our society pushes towards cleaning every single day and you got to wash your hair every single day. You don't really need to. You can stay clean without daily showers. It doesn't have to be every day. So if you're only doing it once a week, once every two weeks, that's all right. I mean, baby wipe in between if you can't get a shower. Wipe down the armpits. You know, splash a little water on your face. Make sure you use soap and some warm water to wash your hands every now and again. But those little bits of cleanliness really help with depression as well. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, that it that it does help just to, if nothing else, to give you like a sense of routine and some sense of accomplishment. And sometimes just getting up and taking care of your basic necessities, you know, brushing your teeth, washing your face, those kinds of things, that might be all you can handle doing that day if you're really depressed. But hey, you know what? It still means you did something. And yeah, it may feel like a monumental effort, but it's still something that is most of the time anyway is going to be manageable on some level. It's definitely a hell of a lot man more manageable than getting up and working at, you know, a 12 hour shift at work. Just something that keeps giving you some sense of structure and routine. I think that's really important. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to, you know, you don't have to have all your ducks in a row all the time. That's not really realistic, especially when you struggle with mental health things. But just something, find little ways to give yourself that sense of routine and that structure. I know that cleanliness aspect is a huge thing for me with my mental health. 
and I actually do kind of need my environment to be really clean. Like I, I start getting stressed out if there's like, you know, a handful of things sitting on my dining table. So it's, it's all sorts of fun when Ivy comes to stay with me because my (laughs) house is a cluttered, disastrous pigsty of a mess compared to how she lives. And so you see her walk in and just get tense and anxious. And if she actually has to stay the night with me, she will be cleaning something at some point. It's going to happen. Like if I have to go to work, I'll come home and the entire house is clean. I don't know where my pots are. She rearranged the kitchen, but it is beautiful up until she leaves. (laughs) Yeah. How many times has that happened that I've come to visit you and in your absence, I've just cleaned everything because I could yeah. not help myself. I can't leave you alone. <laughs> no. Um, I, I will admit that maybe I take the cleanliness thing a little bit too far. I'm very fixated on it, which is weird because when we were kids and Autumn and I shared a room, her side of the room was like pretty well organized. It was pretty clean. Mine was a shit show. There was just a mountain of stuff on my bed because my side of the room would get so chaotically messy that Autumn would eventually just give up and she would just pick up everything off the floor and just pile it on top of my bed. And my stubborn ass would just sleep underneath the pile of stuff on my bed. I probably got bit by so many spiders. I'm really lucky that I didn't end up, you know, a necrotizing wound from a brown recluse because there were a lot of those where we grew up. But yeah, so it's it's interesting how the pendulum has swung in a different direction now because now I am the neat freak. I'm like our grandma. Our grandma was such a neat freak that like she would she would like scold us for not picking like specks of things off the floor. That's that was how meticulous she was with cleaning. She wasn't going to vacuum all the time. And she would like I still can hear her voice being like, you know, if you just stay on top of it, then it doesn't get that bad and it doesn't actually get messy. You see the speck on the floor. Just pick it up when you're walking by it. I have become that person. I try (laughs) to only do that to myself. I try not to do it to other people. Like when I go to visit Autumn, I don't get on to her for not having a clean environment. I just start cleaning because I'm like, I'm the one that has a problem with this. So I, I'll, I'll deal with it. And thankfully and that, she's, she's very, she, <laughs> thankfully she allows me to do it and she doesn't get mad at me for, for doing it. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is one of the ways you can get a clean environment, by the way, is if you have a friend that likes to clean, invite them over. Because if I'm not wrong, Ivy's not resentful at me for not having a clean house. She doesn't judge me. She doesn't look down on me. She just likes having a clean environment. And she sometimes, I think, finds it decreases her anxiety, the very activity of cleaning. And so she's fine with it, aren't you? Or are you judging me? Yeah. <laughs> you're just like, like, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not judging you. And that's the thing. Like, I, I go into people's houses as a massage therapist. That's how I operate on a mobile basis. And, like, people are always apologizing for how messy their house is, especially if they have kids. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm not here to judge your housekeeping. And I really don't care. It's just if I'm going to stay in a place for, you know, a day or two, I need it, my space to be clean. But no, I don't resent it. I don't judge anybody for their house not being meticulous. I know my standards are like fucked when it comes to that. Like I know I'm a little bit, I'm not going to say like full on OCD, but I know I'm more picky and meticulous than a lot of people when it comes to, you know, the cleanliness of their environment and the the structure of their immediate environment. But for me, it's because it's, it's one of my coping mechanisms to keep myself on track. 
because it does help with my depression and it also helps with my anxiety. So if you are one of those people like me that does struggle with cleanliness in your environment, maybe talk with one of your neat freak friends if you have one and and ask them like, you know, would you help me clean up? Would you give me some tips? Because they're probably not going to judge you. They probably just like cleaning and organizing. And so let them clean and organize. And maybe because you're there talking with somebody, you can get up. And so you can do the dishes while they run around the house being a cleaning tornado. So maybe, yeah. I mean, you can just try talking to them and see. Won't hurt. Yeah, you, you can definitely give it a shot because I'm not going to lie. Like I... <laughs> I get giddy sometimes cleaning because I'm like, look, it was so like disorganized and messy and now it looks so nice. See, that's so awesome. And that will also go to taking care of yourself socially as well, getting some of that experience. And I think this also kind of ties in um, to our next piece. And this, this bigger category is essentially called soothing yourself. So when you have depression, when I have depression, I don't know about you, when I have depression, I just feel shitty. I, I feel achy. I feel hurty. Things feel not good. Stuff is crappy. And really what I need to do is, is soothe myself. You know, we talk a lot about inner child work. And a lot of us, especially if you've come from that dysfunctional home or traumatic background, a lot of us weren't really taking care of as children. And so we don't really think about taking care of ourselves that way. And I think even our, our more normative and healthy households, once you become an adult, you don't think about taking care of somebody but if you had a small child and they felt crappy you'd want to help soothe them you'd want to help ease that discomfort and I think that's also vital with depression especially when you are depressed or you feel yourself starting to get depressed is soothing yourself and part of that is those sensory experiences like Ivy was saying if you know that clean house is what helps soothe you then you clean it or for some people, it's aromatherapy or wrapping, wrapping, um, wrapping yourself in blankets. You know, just the idea of that big down comforter weighting down on you or wrapped up or running around the house without pants on. I know people, some people hate pants. I've got a friend that hate pants. She just doesn't wear pants in the house. It's super soothing to her to just be able to run around without pants. One of my things, so ridiculous. I don't know if anybody else has this. I love biting. I love biting things. <laughs> um, so I, I get things to chew on. I'm almost like a dog with a bone. Luckily, I don't do that because I'd probably break my teeth. But I bite things and it, it makes me feel better. So, I mean, soothing yourself. What other sensory things do you have, Ivy, that you soothe yourself? Having like my my little treasures, like Calvin and I go out hiking and we do lots of naturey things and we always come home with you know crystals and seashells and whatnot. So I, I always have like these areas where it's just our collection of all our, our little treasures that we've got, or I've got a shelf with all of my plants on it. And I'm like, but see, this looks pretty. And because it looks pretty and everything looks clean and everything is organized, it makes me feel better. Outside of that, probably the sensory thing that I do the most and always have from the time I was an infant is I play with my hair. And I know some people hate that habit and they find it ridiculous when they see grown adults doing it too much, but it's so ingrained in me now. I don't think that's ever going away. When I get really depressed or I get really anxious, my fingers are instantly in my hair, just instantly, because I like the way my hair feels wrapped around my fingers. Like I just, I like that feeling and it helps calm me down and helps put me in a better mood. So I know that's, that's a weird one to a lot of people. I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but it is what it is. It's probably not going anywhere anytime soon. Thank God Calvin doesn't tease me for it because uh, 
it's still not going to go anywhere, but I would be incessantly embarrassed, embarrassed on a regular basis. But thank God he has his weird things that he does too. He likes to make noise. He always has to be making noise. You don't say anything about my hair and I won't say anything about your noise making. (laughs) (laughs) I think there is a big embarrassment factor that things, you know, do soothe us, especially for those of us that are neurodivergent out there. We have all those fidget toys and fidget jewelry, and that's just part of calming ourselves down and soothing ourselves. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, especially when you're depressed do that. Any little bit of feel good you can do and indulging yourself, whatever that means. I mean, you don't want to go to excess. You do want to maintain a balance. So I indulge myself in sleep. I know when I tend to get depressed, I want to sleep all day. I want to be like my mom did and just go to sleep for two years. I'm not going to indulge myself to that degree, but I'll make sure that I don't have to get up the next morning and I can sleep in till 10 or 11 and I get 10 or 12 hours of sleep on the weekend. I indulge myself a little. Or maybe because I can't ever have sugar, I'll let myself have a donut or something small. With that, I'll I'll always make sure that I take care because a lot of times when we do indulge ourselves, not always, but a lot of times it's indulging in something that's maybe not necessarily great for us, you know, the eating the sugar or the sleeping too much. And so I always try to set up some parameters around it and try to make sure I'm still taking care of myself otherwise. So to make sure I don't sleep all day, I may let myself sleep until 11, but then I schedule something or plan something so that I have to get up and be going by noon. Or if I do eat sugar, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to have a full meal. So I've got protein in my system and then I'll have that little bit of donut. And it's going to be great because it's a sweet treat at the end of a meal. And sometimes it's even stuff that's not horrible for you, like a shower or a bath. How nice is it sometimes to just stand in the shower and and feel it raining down on you or just sitting in the bubble bath and just the heat and the relax and the calm? My biggest indulgence is almost always food. I really love food. It's taken me many years to be willing to admit that I really love food, but I do. And that's my main indulgence. So if I'm feeling depressed or it's been a really long week and I'm just like stressed out, well, I'm going to go buy myself a piece of cake. But like Autumn, I'm not going to buy a whole cake because if I buy a whole cake, I will eat the whole cake and probably in one sitting. So I will just buy a piece of cake or maybe two, depending on how depressed I am and how long the week (laughs) has been. (laughs) So there's that. Uh, And coffee. I really, really like my coffee. It's like part, part of my my daily ritual, I have it in the morning. And I do like fancy coffee is what Calvin always teases me is that I'm like, I I only drink fancy coffee, which is like the only fancy thing about me. It's because I I just enjoy a good latte. And I have like a counter full of different syrups. I have a shitty espresso machine because I am not rich. Someday, if I make enough money, that will be like my one ridiculous luxury expense is just a, a nice espresso machine. But I just really like that as part of my day. And every day when I wake up, regardless, I have it. And it means so much more to me on the days that I'm feeling depressed. Cause I'm like, look, there's something first thing in the morning that I have to look forward to. Why am I getting out of bed? Cause I get to have my fancy coffee. That's why I'm getting out of bed. Um, the other main thing that I do as far as indulging is I I guess because of my obsession with cleanliness is I do tend to splurge more on like self-care things as far as like I, I 
and I don't pay for spa days because I'm too poor for that and also too cheap to go to the spa all the time. But I do have things that I've purchased for myself. Like I got a little facial steamer and I have all these little tools and I have different masks and things like that. So if I'm feeling particularly depressed, one of the ways that I'm gentle with myself is I'm like, I'm going to take a long bath followed by a shower. Because if I sit in the bath, just in my filth, I'm going to be grossed out if I don't take a shower, but I'm going to take a bath followed by a shower. So I get to feel extra clean. And then I'm going to do like a facial on myself and it's, it's going to feel nice. I'm going to do a little facial steamer. It'll be all warm and cozy and then I'll put a mask on and then my skin will feel all nice and glowy. So that's the other way that I indulge myself is just by doing like spa shit, but to myself, cause I'm too cheap to go to a spa. That shit's expensive. It is is expensive. And we, and that's why I say, you know, you have to balance those excess and those indulgences. And I think part of it in our society too, especially for women and, you know, correct me if you all think I'm wrong, is that mentality that it's embarrassing that we treat ourselves or it's somehow selfish. And we've really got to let go of that because we're fucking adults. Why are we expecting somebody else to meet our needs? And that's actually something I've even recently learned in my relationship is I'm one of those people that, you know, if my boyfriend needs something or to indulge or to treat him or whatever, I'm all like, yes, 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 we'll do whatever you need. But I'm over here like with owning two pair of underwear that are held together with strings because I don't want to spend money on me. <laughs> right, right? Because like, oh, but that's just, it's indulging. It's so selfish. We need other things. You, you have those underwear, Ivy? I, I think every I think every woman probably has those underwear. I mean, if nothing else, she has period underwear and period <laughs> underwear are always like the ones that you probably should throw in, but you hold on to them because they're already ruined. So you just you, you keep them so you don't ruin your good underwear. But no, I think uh, I think every woman, or most women anyway, have that bit in them. That's been something that I've been actively trying to break for the last year or so is that habit of just being a constant caregiver and then not doing anything for myself. Uh, It's, it got especially ridiculous when I would see that like Calvin was struggling and I'm like, well, I'm going to do all these things for you. And he would be like, would you please stop? It's a lot. It's like overwhelming. And I'm like, but, but this is what I do. You are struggling. I want to make you feel better, but it was like too much for him. So if I go grocery, if I go grocery shopping because that is another form of indulgence for me. It's just going and buying food. Now, instead of being like, I will buy twenty things for Calvin that I know he likes, I'm like, I will buy Calvin like two things, and I will get myself two things. And some days, when I'm really challenging myself, I'll be like, I'll get him two things, and I'll get myself three things. <laughs> it's it's a good way to be. I mean, it took me a long time too, and I didn't even realize I was do I was doing it. And actually, Jake kind of flipped my issues on myself for me because I was having that thing where I'm like, oh, but I need underwear and I can't have underwear because I am too selfish if I get underwear. And he was like, you know how you're always bitching to me about not pushing my responsibilities onto you, like how it annoys you so much when I don't pick up or I don't do this and then you have to do it. Well, when you do this, that need still needs to be met. And now all of a sudden you're manipulating me into doing it. So now I have to buy you underwear or I have to do this because you're not meeting that need. And and I think that's very true. And yes, we do want our, our lovers and our partners to do stuff special for us. And I agree with that. But it's also the fact of why should he as another grown adult meet 
what is really a basic need, which is me having clothing. I have money for that. I have the ability to buy that. Should I not be adult enough to go out and buy myself a fucking pack of underwear? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so you do have to look at it that way is it's not really selfish to take care of yourself. We've said it again, and it's that mindset that's hard to break, but it's not only not selfish to take care of yourself, it's not selfish to treat yourself, to indulge yourself, to love yourself. It's being a good adult. It's being healthy. It's being functional. It really is. Yeah, and I would I would go so far as to say that it's it's not only you know a healthy thing to occasionally indulge yourself, but I think it's also a necessary thing. I mean, whether you are actively struggling with a mental health issue right now, or you have a history of you know having depressive episodes and you're trying to prevent that, one of the ways that you both help in the moment but also prevent future depressive episodes is by making sure that your needs are met and then a little more. Like let yourself have that little bit of surplus. Let yourself be spoiled a little bit. And it doesn't always have to be a monetary thing. Whatever it is that you find joy in, give yourself the time to do that. Cause it can be even just as simple as like going for a walk in nature. Like I get so wrapped up sometimes in my constant productivity and all of the pressures and stress in life that like I'll be driving home from work and I think, man, I would really love to stop at this park and go for a walk by the lake, but I got to go home and I got to make dinner and then I got to do all this stuff. No, sometimes you actually need to do that thing that does not seem very necessary. Sometimes you actually need to stop at that park and go for a walk by the lake. It's a necessary thing to indulge yourself sometimes. Because if you don't have any joy in life when things are good, it's going to be even harder to find joy in life when you're really struggling with depression. And, and that's the thing, too. It doesn't always have to be money. You know, Ivy talks about buying food or spa stuff, and I talk about buying underwear, which is more basic need than indulgement. But it, it can just be time. You know, like Ivy said, taking time to yourself. And it can be small things. Like I know one of the things Ivy says she does is you just sit in your car, right? You, you come home and you don't get out yet you just sit there yeah because when i'm in my car i am safe <laughs> it's a protective bubble from the rest of the world and all of my responsibilities because as soon as i get out of my car and i climb the stairs up to my apartment guess what there's more stuff for me to do even if it's just basic things like eating and then taking a shower and getting myself ready for bed sometimes when, especially when you are depressed, that is so much work. There are times when I pull into the parking lot and I sit in my car because the idea of even climbing the three flights of stairs to get up to my apartment seems so overwhelming. So I just won't get out of my car for a bit. I have sat in my car before for like two hours after I got home because I just wasn't ready to deal with the rest of life. Sometimes I'll listen to music, sometimes I'll read web comics, sometimes I will just stare off into space, but there is something incredibly therapeutic to me about just sitting in my car for a while and not having to do anything. I think that's really important too, and I think that's part of giving yourself a break and just allowing yourself, and that is an indulgement, is allowing yourself that 
break from things. And part of that, I think, too, is escapism, escaping for just a few moments from your responsibilities. And if you don't have a car, maybe you have a closet you can sit in and hide from your roommates or have a glass of Chardonnay while your kids aren't there staring at you. Whatever it is, you find those little ways to give yourself a one minute, a five minute, a two minute, an hour break, whatever you can afford in your life. And it is partially, and this is part of your soothing yourself too, is escaping just for a little bit, not forever. Because again, you're wanting to balance. You're not wanting to go off the deep end and uh, escape your life, but you do need to give yourself a little soothing. You do need to relax things a little bit. And escapism is part of that. You know, I, I love, I, I tend to watch TV a lot when I get depressed. I really ever watch TV shows any other time, but when I get depressed, I tend to watch TV shows, but it helps me. It gives me a break from the constant shit in my head and I'm able to escape from it. Sometimes even scroll TikTok. You know, you everybody's all like, oh, you need to get off TikTok and you're spending too much. Yeah, so what? You're spending too much time on the phone or in front of the game console or on the computer. Sometimes you need that. Sometimes it's a break. Sometimes you take an hour and you scroll TikTok mindlessly because you don't have to do anything else. I'm sure you've got escapist things, don't you, Ivy? I don't know that anybody doesn't. I feel like everybody's probably got something that they do for escapism. Uh, I think for me... The biggest thing is like in forms of entertainment. I read a lot of web comics. I used to watch a lot of movies. I still read a decent amount of books. And for the most part, I really am obsessed with a good love story. But I don't want to deal with any bullshit in between where they're like fighting with each other constantly. Like I don't need that drama. I just want it to be like pretty much like happy all the way through. Like that's my thing. I love a happy ending. And I love no drama and I, I, I don't like it when there's, you know, all these misunderstandings and bad communication. Cause I'm like, well, this is stupid. This is too much like real life. I'm trying to escape here. So for me, it's all love stories. I think that's the, the main thing or anything with physical comedy. And it's, I think it's more of like, it starts out at least as a nervous laughter thing, but then I start genuinely laughing and laughing just makes you feel better. I love physical comedy, like people being clumsy and doing like stupid shit. Like I even laugh when I fall. Like if I'm clumsy, like the story that I told earlier about running into the wall, after I stumbled back befuddled, I then giggled for quite a while afterward because it's just like, I can't, I can't believe I did that. And like, how ridiculous would that have looked from the outside? And when I, when I fall, you know, going up or down stairs, I tend to laugh. Like Any time that I do something clumsy or ridiculous, even if it's embarrassing, I start laughing. And then the more that I laugh, the more I'm, I just get into that, that space of feeling better because there's just something about laughter that once you get started it it really does release all those endorphins and you start feeling better even if it's just for a short period of time so when i'm feeling really depressed i will go in search of physical comedy just because i need to laugh i don't i don't generally go after much of the stuff on youtube where people are genuinely getting hurt it's more like i try to find movies that are really centered on physical comedy and they are usually brainless and really fucking stupid but that's okay because i'm there for the laughter that's all i'm there for i just want to watch somebody pretend to hurt themselves doing something clumsy and dumb just pretend don't do it in real life 
I, I think that's, that's really what soothing is all about, though. It's finding ways to get those little pops of positive emotion here and there, that guffaw from a horrible, stupid movie, or just the the ease of not having to do anything for five minutes or the feel of something nice. Another big one that a lot of people use, and this isn't a big one for me, but a lot of people do it, is religion or spirituality. That is a way to soothe yourself. It's a way to calm yourself. It's a way to feel like you're being taken care of, you're being protected. And it really ties into that that bigger spiritual, that bigger overall universal feeling. And some of us do need to be soothed on that level that we need to be taken care of on a universal level. And so if, you know, you do believe in a God or gods or goddesses or a power, in, in, indulging in that, allowing yourself time to experience. Maybe you go to your church service another time during the week if it's offered, or you do some volunteer work for them, or you meditate more frequently. Whatever your spiritual religious expression is, participating in that more because that is a way to soothe yourself to get in touch with the universe and feel like the universe cares about you yeah and i think another component to the religious or spiritual aspect of things is that when you are deep in depression it can really feel like there is no purpose and no point to anything at all so on top of being able to get this sense that you are cared for and protected by the universe or God or whatever it is that you believe in, I think there's also that benefit of feeling like, okay, I'm going through this right now and this is really hard, but there's still a purpose to my life. I'm still working towards something or maybe even I'm going through this depressive episode right now for a reason that will reveal itself. And you know, maybe some people think that that's an unhealthy way to go about it, but when you are really depressed, you latch onto whatever you need to latch onto to give yourself a reason to keep going. And there are definitely you know, far more destructive ways to do that than believing in a higher power and seeking out that, either that connection directly with God or the universe or seeking out that sense of community or just wanting to feel loved and protected and wanting to feel like you have a sense of purpose. I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, just like with anything else, you can definitely take it too far, but that's the same with anything. You can take anything too far. And when you're feeling really depressed, I think it's, it, it's important to find something that gives you a reason to keep going. That purpose can be big or small. I mean, it doesn't have to be God or the universe. It can be a houseplant. I've had periods in my life when I haven't killed myself because I had a dog or a lizard. I had a pet that was dependent on me. And for whatever reason in my mind at that time, it made more sense for me to live for that lizard or that dog or that houseplant than it did for my intimate partner or my sister. And that's because depression, like we've said, it gets into your head and it twists your thoughts. And I think, oh, I'm such a horrible person. You know, my sister would be better off without me. My boyfriend wouldn't have to deal with my shit if I was gone. But my dog really loves me. He wouldn't understand. I, who's going to feed him on a regular basis? Who's going to make sure he gets the treats he wants? Who scratches his butt in the right place that makes him so happy? I'm the only person that could do that. And so I stayed around for that. And that little bit of purpose, that's okay. If that's all you're hanging on for, hang on for that. If you're the only one at work that can write the reports correctly, and that's the only reason you're hanging on right now, great. Whatever the purpose is, I think it's vital to find that. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that as well, that it doesn't really matter what the purpose is, just find something to keep going. And I'm seeing this circulate more in social media. And the first time that I saw it, like it kind of made me laugh, but then I was like, actually, no, that's good. Like that's a, a purpose too. It's like, I've been seeing the, this, this phrase out there on social media of I'm surviving out of spite. And there had been times in my life, I think the reason why I laughed when I saw it is because there have been times in my life when I was surviving out of spite when it was like, yeah, I really want to kill myself. I'm fucking miserable. And like, yeah, I like it would hurt my sister, but she's also going to get a shit ton of money in life insurance if I die. So it doesn't really matter. And then I would think, yeah, but fuck, that would give my father some sense of satisfaction or give him some excuse to play the victim and get people to feel sorry for him and fuck him. So like there have been times that the only thing keeping me going is spite. And if that's all you got going, that's fine. Like latch on to whatever it is that gives you a reason to keep going. So yeah, I, I it doesn't always have to be a purely positive thing. It doesn't always have to be because you're you're hanging on for somebody or something because you are the only person that can do that or be there for them or whatever. It can literally be, you know, I'm staying alive as a fuck you. That's totally fine too, because it's still a reason to keep going. It's perfectly acceptable. It is any reason is good. And that's purpose itself is a huge thing with depression is finding purpose, big, little, small, doesn't matter any kind of purpose. And with purpose and with indulgence and all those other things we we talked about, it may seem imbalanced. It seems like, oh, I've got to do so much of this. Like I need to give myself an hour break or I have to spend this much in order to feel better. Depression is an imbalance. That's part of what's going on. Your system is quite literally imbalanced, physiologically imbalanced. And so you're trying to rebalance. And so if you put two weights on the end of something and it's balanced, great. But if all of a sudden the weight on one end is 2,000 pounds and the weight on the other end is 50, you're out of balance. And so when your depression weighs 2,000 pounds, sometimes you do have to go excessive into some of these things to bring that balance back up. And that's totally okay. Like we said, you need to keep the long term somewhat in mind and make protective factors around this so your attempts to balance don't create greater deficits. Because sometimes, again, you think of those weights on a teeter-totter, you think you're adding weight to that 50-pound feel-good, and it's just rolling down to the depression like a slide. And you don't want it to do that. So you've got to find ways to keep it on this side while we're lifting that balance back up. And I think that's the next piece, too of what's really important when coping with depression is re-regulating. Your system is imbalanced. Your system is dysregulated. And so you've got to find ways to help get yourself balanced back in. You know, we talked about those feel-good things. We have even talked about diet and exercise and how all that helps. But there's also other tiny things. You know, routine, like Ivy said, is a huge one. That can help bring regulation to your life. I get up at X time. I do this at X time. I do this at X time. I brush my teeth. It, it may seem little, but you just follow the routine. And following that routine again and again and again can help bring regulation. Um, another, like a huge one for me, um, and I, I attribute this to my childhood and <laughs> the way I was raised is uh, physical connection with other people, with people I love. I, if you, if I don't love you, don't touch me because it'll freak me out. But people I, I right, right? I almost elbowed an old woman in the face because she touched me. So... <laughs> I'm glad. I'm sure she's glad you did not elbow her in the face. She's probably afraid of touching strangers now, though. <laughs> As she should be. But but if 
when I get depressed, especially, and just on a daily basis, for me to help prevent dysregulation, whether it's into depression or anxiety or whatever it is, physical connection is huge. I, I cuddle, I hug my intimate partner, my pets. I pet my pets. I mean, that's why the word pet is there, isn't it? To pet them. But any sort of thing I can do because my my mind, and we talked about this in our love episode and in my love blog as well, it's looping out with that other entity. It's looping out and their regulation is going to help bring you into regulation. So physical connection is important for me. And I've even noticed for me, sex is important. Like my sex drive plummets when I'm depressed. And that's, it's hard for me to have sex because when you don't want to have sex, it can feel violative. It really can because everything's tense and it hurts and you're a little scared. And if you've got an unsafe background, it's so much worse. But I find ways to work with my partner to bring sex back because having that sexual connection with my boyfriend really, really helps me regulate because it brings me so much more connected and we're so much more on the same page. And now I'm able to just gobble up and eat up all of his balance. So, you know, his serotonin's where it needs to be and his GABA and his dopamine and everything else. And once I connect into that, once I plug into that, I can do that better. And so for me, I find ways to work with my boyfriend to increase sex for me, even when I don't feel like having sex. And usually that involves just starting out cuddling or touching or massages until I feel safe and good and can do that. But that's something I need. But not everybody is going to need that. Other people, it may just be touch or maybe it's not. What are your thoughts on that, Ivy, physical connection and depression? Oh, uh, my relationship with touch is weird in general. Uh, I'm very touch aversive. I don't like people touching me. Uh, even when Autumn hugs me, I tense up. I let her hug me because she's my sister and I love her. I don't hug my sister because I need it. I allow her to hug me because I know that she needs it and I care about her and therefore I let her do it. I am touch aversive. The only exception to that rule is Calvin. Like for whatever reason, physically speaking, he is the only human being that I've ever had in my life that I feel completely 100% physically comfortable with and safe enough with to be truly intimate. And by intimate, I'm not even talking about sex. I'm talking about like cuddling for long periods of time. I have cuddled for entire days with that man. Like we'll have like two or three days in a row where all we've done is lay on the couch and cuddle together. I've never been able to really do that with anybody else and not at least need like breaks so I can get a breather. But I, I know that touch is important it is part of that Maslow's hierarchy. It's a very basic need. And there have been times, I'll admit, where I kind of wonder if on some subconscious level, that's why I'm drawn to the field that I'm in. Because there is obviously with massage, a lot of touch involved, but I don't have to let anybody touch me. It is still contact. There's still that, um, and that neurochemical feedback loop that's happening there. And I'm bringing comfort and relaxation and all of that to another person. And so I'm still benefiting somehow from that touch without it feeling invasive to me. And I have kind of wondered if that's part of why I'm drawn to this field. Like I kind of fell into this profession just by more circumstances than anything. But the longer that I've been in it, what I've noticed is that if I take off like a week from work, or especially if I take off 10 days to two weeks, I, by the time it's ready, by the time 
I'm supposed to go back to work. I am ready. Like I miss it if I go too long without it. And I kind of wonder if that's like some workaround that my brain developed for my touch aversion because touch is still really important. And if I go too long without working, I do start to get depressed. And part of that is because I need routine and I need structure, but I've never had any other job where I actually felt like, okay, I need to do this. It's, it's more than just, no, I need to be working because I need routine. There is a part of me that I think it really thrives from that touch because for me, it's a, a safe form of touch. So it's, uh, it, it is interesting when it comes to depression and people who are touch aversive, especially if you have a trauma history like I do. But sometimes your, your brain finds workarounds. And I think that's part of what massage is for me is it's given me a safe opportunity to experience positive touch without me feeling violated or without me actually having to be touched. There's still benefit there and there's still that positive connection. It's just a little bit different and it's a lot safer for me. I think that's a really, really good tidbit though, because I think there are a lot of people out there, especially, you know, whether you're autistic spectrum or even some of our ADHD folk, or you have that traumatic background, especially a sexually traumatic background that are touch aversive. But like you said, touch is still important. So how do you meet that need, especially when your body's dysregulated and how do you re-regulate? And I think that's a really vital point, a really vital workaround is, can you find a way to touch without being touched? You know, is that maybe you offer to do your friend's hair or a manicure or a pedicure could find a way to touch without being touched you know even offering your partner a massage if you don't want to be touched but you can give that to them yeah and i i think as well like you had mentioned before just even petting your your uh, your pet i i think that there's that's another way to work around even if you don't have an animal there's still ways that you can find opportunities if you like animals and you can get that positive feedback loop with touch from interacting with an animal like usually if you if you go to a dog park, there's going to be lots of dogs and the dog owners at dog parks are usually going to be like pretty cool with you like petting their dog as you walk by. Like I used to have a dog. Henry's been gone for quite some time now and I haven't had the heart yet to, to get a new dog. But there are still times when I'm feeling really depressed when I'll go to the dog park just so I can see the dogs and nobody questions anything. I just walk walk around and wait for a dog to approach me. And then I pet the dog and it's like really happy thing. And by the time I leave the dog park, I'm feeling a lot better. There are still ways to get touch that don't even involve other human beings and that aren't weird. I've, I've never gotten like a weird look from somebody at the off-leash dog park for not having a dog with me because I think they just assume my dog is off somewhere. <laughs> And if not, like most of us dog owners, like if we saw you and you didn't have a dog, we just pity you because it's like, oh, what a sad life that you don't own a dog because we're oh. those kind of people. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. When I had my dog, Henry, like Henry was such an awesome dog. He was beautiful and he was so sweet and he was amazing. And if somebody passed by and they didn't at least look at him and acknowledge him, I was offended. Cause I'm like, this dog is amazing. Like you couldn't even smile at him. Like, I don't fucking need you to smile at me, but you should smile at my dog. Cause my dog is amazing. You're an asshole. You didn't even try <laughs> to acknowledge my dog's existence. How can you not acknowledge this ball of cuteness? I don't get it. I know not everybody likes dogs, but I, I, I can't comprehend not liking dogs. And I used to get very insulted when people would not acknowledge Henry's cuteness. Like I was always down to let a stranger pet my dog. 
And Henry would just lap it up. He loved that shit. That's so true. Yeah. Like that's how you feel though. So, I mean, there are ways to get that sort of touch either with other humans or with animals. And I'm not sure what the research on it would be as far as touch goes and reestablishing that sort of regulation. But another piece of that, uh, I've heard it a lot referred to as grounding, but basically the idea of getting back in touch with nature, walking barefoot in grass, touching plant life, because life is life. And so maybe even if you are animal averse and human averse, or you just don't have those options in your life right now because of whatever's going on, is there a way that you can get back into nature? Hug a tree. I, I know that sounds ridiculous, but I have hugged trees before and it's made me feel better. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's something where I think I'm hugging something. I don't know, but I know I feel better from it. So I hug trees. I touch plants. I try to do it in a way that won't hurt it because if you touch the flower and then it dies and then you feel bad and that's not good, but find a way to touch nature, the good parts, not the itchy ones, like the poison ivy and the poison oak. I've done that. Don't, don't touch those. But, but even just being in nature and grounding yourself, I think can re-regulate. And I think part of that too is many of us, and I'm going to say this, I think more from the PTSD perspective, because that empath is, I feel really comes from there that had that traumatic childhood. And we do play that empath role and we pick up on everybody's emotions if you live near a population, if you live in a city, if you live in a small town, if you live in a suburb, people's emotions are constantly beating into you like in an ocean and it gets overwhelming and you're being dysregulated by their dysregulation. And so when you can step away from that, when you can get insulated from that for a little while, sometimes your own regulation can kick back in because it's not fighting off, you know, 200 or 2000 or 2 million different people's energies that are coming at you so i think getting into nature is extremely important of course if you like nature and if you don't like nature like ivy said about you know her dog like what's wrong with you that you don't like her dog or nature but <laughs> yeah if you don't like if you don't like people you don't like animals and you don't like nature i don't know what to tell you i'm not sure what to suggest like i would suggest like Go do something in an urban environment. But if you don't like people, that's probably going to be problematic. I don't know. Like, I, I do think it's important, though, to find some way to at least connect with the outside world, whether that is with another human being or whether it's with an animal or it's being out in nature. I think that's part of the power of you know grounding, as they call it, is that you are consciously making an effort to connect to something outside of yourself. Because part of what happens with depression is that you become so internalized and you get so trapped in your head and the world outside almost feels like it's this surreal thing that doesn't really exist because your mind is now a prison. And it's so important to, to find some way to connect outside of yourself, get outside of your head, at least, even if you can't do that, even if you can't regulate by forming a direct connection with another living being, at least find a way to get outside of your head, get connected to something in the outside world, find some way to do that, even if that's just going to the grocery store for a bit, just making a conscious effort to be outside of your head for a while. And I think that kind of goes into one of the other things that, that we have on our list, practicing mindfulness, is that you are going through the world and you're going through the motions of life in a very conscious way, which does break you out of that habit of being stuck in your head. 
and it's and it allows you to to start building these new neural pathways so that you really can get out of the prison that is your mind that's a big part of why mindfulness practice works I mean, there are other components to it too, but that's part of it is that you are forcing yourself outside of your head long enough to reconnect with what is outside and to recognize that there is something more out there. And sometimes that's really beneficial, like more beneficial than maybe we realize. I, I even forget how beneficial that is. And I'll get so trapped in my head with all of my depression or my anxiety or the stress or whatever. And then on the weekends when I have a day off and I go out into nature and I just look around me and I'm like, that mountain has been there for a real long fucking time. It was there before I was around. It's going to be there after I'm gone. There is something much bigger than me. Like, yes, my, my problems are important because they're mine and I'm the one that has to deal with them but I am not all there is in this universe. And to me, that, even though it might sound kind of counterintuitive, to me, that actually is very helpful when I can look outside of myself and see that like, no, life is still going on around me and everything is still going through its cycles. You know, the seasons are going through their cycles and you're seeing this process of you know, death and rebirth and all of that. And it is a reminder to me that I, yes, I am in this space where I'm feeling depressed, but everything is cyclical and life continues on and I will not always be in this place. And sometimes I need that reminder that I will not always be stuck in depression. It will get better. Even if I have another depressive episode in the future, it's still not forever. It's it goes up and down and life ebbs and flows and life continues on. And there's something more to life than just me. And if I can connect to what is out there that is beyond me, it might help pull me back into the cycles of nature and help me be more accepting of where I'm at right now and give me more hope about where I will be in the future. Being actively engaged in anything is part of re-regulating. I think mindfulness is excellent because it does bring you to the now and it does get you out of your head. But anything you can do to get actively engaged in your life, you know, whether that's working on projects or developing a hobby, um, I mean, anything, gardening, shipbuilding, golf, stamp collecting, anything, it doesn't matter, brain stimulating activities, uh, little puzzles or games that you play, but something to get you engaged in the world around you. And this isn't necessarily escapism. You know, I'm not trying to do this to escape from the horrible feelings. I'm trying to do this to go towards something. Because I think that's, that's the difference between escaping and, and, you know, what we're talking about being actively engaged. Escaping is running away and that active engagement is running to. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to find something to run to, to be engaged in. And sometimes that can even be employment. I know Ivy said in the past she tends to get depressive when she's not employed because that helps forced, forces her to stay engaged in the world. With that too, art is wonderful. Any kind of art. You know, you can be drawing, it can be music, it can be dancing around in your kitchen and movement, it can be a martial art, it can be whatever you want. And I think that ties into our next category too of expression. Because when you start getting into art, you start getting into the expression part of depression. And I think expression is 
is really, really vital. You know, we always talk, well, we should talk about it. And I know not everybody does. A lot of people out there don't want to talk about their shit for whatever reason. And that's valid. And that's one of the reasons I love the idea of art as expression, because you are able to get these feelings outside of you because your world is a prison and there's just so much shit and feces and stank and rot and everything in here that is just causing this depression to continue and to ferment and to be horrible. And you've got to find a way to get that outside of you, to start dumping the stuff out of you. And if you're not able to do that verbally, then try something artistic. And like I said, it doesn't have to be art. Like a lot of us hear art and you're like, oh, I can't draw or I'm not good. It doesn't matter if you're good at it. Dance around in the kitchen with your mop. So what? Are you having fun? Are you expressing stuff? Are you moving? Whatever it happens to be, I think it's it's a great way to express that. <laughs> Obviously, it's time for me to take over because Autumn just did this big expression <laughs> with her body where she threw her arms in the air in a big circle, which was my cue to take over. And <laughs> yes, I would agree that any form of art is going to be helpful for, for expression. And yeah, not get trapped in this box of what art really means because I think a lot of us get trapped in thinking that we are not artistic or we are not creative and that is definitely not true everybody has their own form of creativity and their own form of expression through that creativity that can be really beneficial like for me I my, my mom trained me to sing from a very young age and it is a very powerful form of expression for me when I'm feeling depressed or when I'm feeling anxious, stressed out, whatever it is, singing helps. And it's, it, it's on multiple levels because part of it is yeah lyrical content and getting lost in the music, but there is also something very physically releasing for me in that because it does singing includes breath work and being very aware of your body and all of those things, which I typically am not. So for me, singing is a really helpful artistic expression or just even if you don't want to think of it as artistic, even if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, but singing just makes you feel good. It doesn't have to be artistic. It doesn't at all. It can just be a form of expression. And there are other forms of expression that maybe people wouldn't necessarily think about too. Like my boyfriend does not think of himself as being creative whatsoever, but he spends an awful lot of time looking into like how planes are engineered and how boats are engineered and all sorts of things like that. He's very mechanically minded. And he's always thinking about like, oh, wouldn't it be so cool if like you could do this and you could like take this thing. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but you're really passionate about it right now. And he has issues with depression too, but when he gets into that space where he's thinking about all of the possibilities, even though the things he's interested in, I'm like, that sounds really fucking boring to me, but it makes you happy. And the biggest frustration that I have is that we don't have the equipment or the means necessary or the space necessary for him to put these ideas into action because I would love for him to be able to actually physically express these ideas too. So it doesn't always have to be something that is artistic and we need to not get caught in this idea that we are not creative beings. Like there was even a time for a while where I got into mixed media art, which is basically by my understanding as not somebody who's ever been to art school or really knows much of anything about art in the traditional sense, mixed media for me was just like, I got a bunch of random shit. I'm gonna stick it all to a canvas and see what happens. 
And I ended up creating some stuff that I was like, huh, that actually is a pretty good expression of like what I'm going through internally right now. Sometimes it, you just do just throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. Maybe that's literally just, you know, make sure that you're going to be okay <laughs> with it being on your wall and that it, you know, if you're renting someplace that they're not going to take your deposit for it. Like maybe, I don't know, put a big piece of paper up on the wall and just start throwing shit at it and see what sticks. But it can be, it can be anything. Expression can mean so many things. It, it really can. And, you know, it always, we always talk about talking and talking is great if you're able to talk. If you can emotionally express, emotionally expressing is great. A lot of us get, I found a lot of us get emotions trapped in their body. Even me, who's like a highly emotional person. Apparently I have so much shit. I just can't like get it out all. And so I've found massage helps me because it works through some of those kinks that are in my body. But you do have to be aware that if you do have emotions stored in your body and you go in and you get that massage, that emotion is going to get released and now it's got to go somewhere. So again, you have to find that expression. But anything like that, that really helps, especially if it can involve somebody else because it's very validating and it's important to know that what you're feeling is understandable and acceptable and for somebody to say god i'm sorry you're hurting or wow that's a huge amount of pain or yeah i've been there and a lot of times we think about validation or expression as being this really active thing i have to be crying or talking or dancing or throwing shit at the wall apparently <laughs> but it doesn't have to be i mean i listen to sad music when i'm super depressed I don't, I don't have the energy to sing. I don't have the energy to draw or dance or move, but I can sit there and listen to Sarah McLachlan and um, I think it's Anson Sebra. It's horribly depressing stuff. Ryan Adams is one of my favorite. And you just hear the ache and the pain and everything. And a lot of people think, well, you know, you should be listening to happy music because it's going to make you feel better. I'm like, no, this sad music makes me feel better because I'm sad and they're sad. And now I feel understood. And I feel like this is acceptable. And I feel like, yes, this is where I'm at. And you would think it would make me more depressed. But when I listen to that sad music, it makes me feel better. And it gives me a release because even though I am not actively doing anything, this music is coming into me. It's allowing that release of emotion. It's allowing me to not hold it so tightly. It's allowing me to let it flow back into the universe. And I think Ivy said one of the things she does, which is actually more, I guess you'd say, logical-minded, is memoirs. Yeah, I read a lot of memoirs when I've been depressed. Like, I, I, <laughs> I have so many books on my shelves. There's just memoirs from people who've had mental health struggles. And that is, like, my form of the sad music. Sometimes I listen to sad music, too, but that's almost a little bit too much for me sometimes. Sometimes I feel it a little too deeply. Whereas reading memoirs, it's it's dosed out enough, and I can handle it a little bit better. But the you know the last episode that we did, the first episode for the depression series was I started out with an excerpt from the Bell Jar, and that was like the first memoir that I read about mental health. It made such a huge impact on me. Now I have you know, an entire shelf that's just full of books that are memoirs because there is that sense of validation and there is something to be said for that cathartic feeling of just reading or hearing or whatever, what somebody else has experienced and being like, yes, I relate to that too. 
I'm not the only one that feels that I'm not the only one that gets trapped in my head. And it's, there's something to be said also for how, how much less alone that makes you feel because depression really does isolate you. It makes it very difficult for you to connect with other people. It makes it very difficult for you to get up and do anything to put effort in. It, it takes a lot out of you to just be depressed. And so when you can experience someone else's expression of their depression, that can be cathartic for you and it can help you feel way less alone without the effort of actively connecting to that other person. It's, it, it allows you to have connection without having to put in effort to be connected, which I think is why it's so appealing for me when I'm depressed to read those memoirs or to watch movies about people struggling with mental health stuff. Like I still have a, a ton of movies on DVD and on VHS about people who have spent time institutionalized and things like that, because there is something about that that I'm like, okay, I can feel like I can relate to something to somebody else. This is outside of my own head, but it's relatable. And I'm not having to put in any effort here. I'm not having to give anything of myself in this. I am able to totally and completely receive in a way that is not obligatory on any level for me or the other person. And I think that there's something very freeing about that. I think another freeing form of expression too, and it does require some giving, but is commiserating. And I guess you wouldn't have to definitely be giving, but a pity party. There's something to be said for a good, wonderful, strong pity party. Whether this is all by yourself, where you just like go through and poor me and woe is me and things are shit, or you get somebody on the phone and you go, oh my God, my life sucks right now. And the other person says, me too, everything is shit. And you just talk about how everything is shit. <laughs> because again, you need to get it out. And sometimes it, it, we were all focused on like, you know, focus on the positive and the, the silver lining. Eh, fuck that. Sometimes you just need to talk about how horrible things are. Sometimes you just need to say it out loud. Sometimes you just need to stew over like this sucks and it's horrible because that is a form of validation that this is a really crappy place to be and I don't want to be here. And Ivy and I do that sometimes. We get on the phone with each other and it's not about finding a positive outcome or giving each other coping skills it's literally a bitch session she bitches about shit that's going on in her life i bitch about shit that's going on in my life both of us understand that we're in a shitty place and we're not really probably not paying attention that much to what the other person is saying or investing a lot in it but we're both there together sitting in this pile of shit and it's 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 nice to just throw shit together <laughs> Most of my really strong friendships have been built on a foundation of commiserating about mental health shit. And they've developed into, you know, wonderful, healthy, productive things where we also share good moments with each other. But some of my, my strongest relationships were initially built on me being in a horrible spot and that person being in a horrible spot and just meeting up at a mutually shitty time in our lives and being like, this all sucks. This is all bullshit and everybody sucks and life sucks and everything is terrible. And the other person just being like, yeah, right? I know. How does everybody else seem to be happy? What the fuck is wrong with these people? Everything is shit. How can you be happy when everything is shit? It's like people just walking around covered in diarrhea and they're just super happy about it. How does anybody do that? 
Like I, I have that kind of relationship with Autumn. I have that with my, with my best friend, Gina, I think up in Canada and, you know, shout out to you, Gina, because out of, out of everybody in my life, Gina has been like my favorite go-to person for that. Like the first, I would say like the first year of our friendship, because both of us were in a horrible spot and it, we were in a horrible spot of a similar type. So like the first year of our friendship was mostly just us being like, I'm miserable. I know I'm miserable too, but I love you. This is, it's nice to have somebody to be miserable with. Everything else sucks, but I have you. That's nice. I like this. It's the only thing worth liking right now. But there, there is something really powerful about that. And I think because you can have those deep, honest conversations with another person who is not going to try to tell you how to fix things and they're not going to judge you for it and they're going to be accepting of the fact that you're in a bad headspace and you're not going to be positive like having that allows you especially if like with Gina and I it was our first full year of, as friends I got to know Gina and she got to know me on such a deep level because we saw each other shit first. We saw all the crappy stuff first. And then over time, as we both got into a better headspace, we were able to, you know, build on that foundation. And it allowed us to get to know each other on such a deep level that we probably wouldn't have if we had not ever just commiserated in that way. I think it is important when you have mental health stuff to find somebody else who also has mental health stuff to connect with. And you don't always have to both be in this, in a bad spot at the same time. Like even just having a friend who may be in a wonderful spot in their life, but they've dealt with some shit before, they're going to be way more understanding of what you're going through. And they're going to be way more understanding of what goes into that. And if you tell them like, I don't want a solution, I just need to complain right now they are going to be like, yeah, sure. You do whatever you need to do. And I will be on board with you telling you that, yes, you are valid in feeling that this is awful and it's terrible. That's totally valid to feel that way. Because sometimes you just need that from another person. Even if you don't necessarily feel guilty about having these mental health things, even just having another person to say, yes, what you're going through is real and it's valid and it's okay that you are not okay right now. And I love you anyway. I think it's so vital to form connections with other people who also are struggling with something as well. And it may not even necessarily be like the kind of commiserating that Autumn and I are talking about. I, I know a lot of the men in my, in my life that I've known who have significant issues with depression when they get together with their friends, it's almost like a room full of stand-up comedians. Like they get it out through humor. I mean, there's a reason why there's so many stand-up comedians out there who have mental health problems and have had a history of mental health problems and whose families probably have mental health problems as well. Like those two things often go hand in hand because that is another form of expression for people to get these things out of your system. Because you don't, if you don't get it out in some way, shape or form, it just poisons you. And that's why it's so important to get that validation and to get that expression is because it's got to go somewhere. 
It really does. And like we said, I mean, it doesn't have to be an active participation. I mean, I really do think it's good, especially when you're depressed, if you can get out there and get that actual real connection with another human being, because it gets you out of your head so much more because of just our biological nature of how humans are designed. But it can be that passive, you know, the memoir, the sad music or the stand up comedy special. I, Christopher Titus, Norman Rockwell is bleeding. One of my absolute favorites of all time because of that it's just an entire stand-up comedy about how shit's fucked up when you grow up in a fucked up family and you can laugh about it and it's expressing and it's validating and i think it's another thing which is the next section we want to talk about in coping with depression is ex accepting and i think this is absolutely vital when you're depressed to really cope with it is you have to accept that you have depression Depression is a, a physiological illness. It is a physiological imbalance. And if you got diagnosed with cancer or you broke your arm and a bone was sticking out, you're not just going to go on pretending that nothing's wrong. You have to accept that something is wrong so that you can begin moving forward. And I think that's extremely important with depression too, is that you have to accept it. And part of that is through bitching about it and commiserating and expressing yourself. And part of it also is in not pushing yourself. I think the best analogy for me with this, especially when it comes to depression, is um, I have very, very bendy joints for whatever reason. I overextend easily. And when I was doing Taekwondo, we were doing self-defense and they were showing a specific hold and they're like, yeah, this is a pain hold. So whenever it hurts, you need to tap out. And I was just letting them bend and bend and bend. And they're like, are you not going to tap? And I'm like, it doesn't hurt that. And they're like, your elbow is literally bent backwards. And I'm like, yeah, it still goes further. And the individual that was teaching is like, okay, stop, stop, stop. This is going to be a problem for you because what this means is your body is not going to automatically protect itself. Other people's bodies are protecting that joint with pain so that that joint can't get broken. By the time you feel pain, it's going to be too late. So you now have to be aware of this and not push yourself past the point. And I think that's part of what it is with depression is you have to be aware that depression is happening or could happen and set that limit. Because for us, that joint will bend and bend and bend until it breaks before it hurts. And so we've got to be the ones that step in and say, okay, I'm not going to let it go that far. I'm going to set that boundary. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I don't let it get that far. And you don't push yourself. And that could be don't push yourself by you know, not setting up as many meetings. It's okay to not talk to your friend that day. Like I said, brushing your teeth one time a week instead of every day. Letting those expectations drop and I think that goes hand in hand with not pushing yourself too is releasing yourself from those expectations so it used to be that with depression for me I would just give in to the depression because it is very addictive as we mentioned in the last episode I would just give in to it and then I wouldn't get up I wouldn't do anything that's part of the reason why I require employment and things that force me out into the world because I know how far I can sink and how bad it can get. And I think as a reflexive thing that I did in response is I kind of went the opposite direction. So like now when I get depressed, my immediate reaction is, okay, well, I'm feeling depressed. I don't want to sink into that spot again. So I need to go and do this and be productive in this way. And I'm going to make myself go and do things and be actively engaged and do all of this stuff. And then I feel like I have to do all the things and then I overwhelm myself and I exhaust myself even further and then the crash is even harder. 
I'm still having a hard time balancing that because I went from, well, I'm just not going to push myself at all. I am going to be like mom and just, you know, give up on everything and everyone and not care. I went from that now to my default is no, now I have to do all the things because I'm depressed and I don't want to sink into that. I don't want to take a break because I'm afraid if I take a break, it'll last for two years. So I'm still having a hard time finding that balance too. That is part of the process as well with learning how to cope with depression, especially when it is chronic for you or recurring is finding that re that right balance between giving yourself the space and time and the rest that you need versus making sure that you're still actively engaged in things and just accepting that that in and of itself is a process that you're not going to get it right the first time and it may be a while before you get it right and even then once you do find that balance you're probably still always going to be recalibrating it for the rest of your life every time that you go through a depressive episode that's part of the acceptance process too and it it is hard to accept that you are feeling depressed and that depression makes you feel incapacitated or disconnected or isolated. It's, it, it is a very difficult thing to accept, but the sooner that you can accept that and you start working with it and finding things that work for you and finding ways to balance things out in your life so that you get both the rest and the activity that you need, the better. That's, it's impossible for the depression to, well, not impossible for the depression to get better if you don't do anything about it, because sometimes depression is just, it'll go away on its own with given enough time. But that's such a uncertain thing, and it doesn't always just go away with enough time. The first step towards actually getting to a space where you feel better and you feel happier is accepting that you even have the depression and then figuring out where to go from there, learning what your coping skills are and finding that balance so that you don't take things too far to either end of the spectrum. And I think that moves us right into that that last piece we wanted to talk about today is challenging and change because that's another part of how you cope with depression. Like Ivy said, you first need to accept it. You need to acknowledge it. You need to acknowledge your bone is sticking out of your skin and not just go about your day like it's not. But then once you've accepted it, you don't just go, okay, well, I guess this is my life. My bone is just exposed to the world now. You say, well, shit, I should probably do something about this. I should see I'm a, a professional. I should get this bone set. I should, I should, I should do something. And that's how it is with depression. You then, once you have that acceptance that, yes, I am depressed. Yes, this is okay. You then learn how to challenge the depression and how to challenge the factors and change your life and change your mind and change your environment. One of the very first things I think that's important is just tracking this. You know, Ivy and I had a whole episode, I think it was one of our longer ones, about mental health check-ins. That is an excellent tool for so many mental health issues, but especially depression, because you start tracking. Or a lot of people journal. Journaling is great if you like that. There's also all these little apps now that you can use to track. Even your Fitbit stuff, I think there's mental health tie-ins with that but you track what's going on because part of what you're doing by tracking what's going on is figuring out what factors are contributing. Is it a diet thing? Is it a seasonal thing? Is it a trauma reactive thing? What's happening? You don't know if you don't track it. And then once you get some of that tracking information and you learn about yourself, you also need to learn about 
depression itself. You need to know yourself, but you also need to get outside resources. You know, those are self-help books, uh, behavioral analysis. I know back when I first started, like, you know, deprogramming and trying to get my shit together, site quizzes, all those little personality quizzes online. Oh my God. I did those like two, three, four, five a day. I loved going through my bachelor's program because they're like, oh, here's a little example of the MBTI. You should take this or the MMPI or some other thing. And I'm like, took everything. I'm like, oh, what is this for psychopaths? I'll take this. I'll see if I'm a psychopath. I just want to know. I want to know what's going on with me. But it's <laughs> learning. Hey, right? Tell me you that way, Ivy. I think every single person who has had either a chronic mental health issue or a recurring mental health issue, or who came from a dysfunctional family, I think if you fit into any of those categories, you have probably taken a shit ton of personality tests and psychology-based quizzes for pretty much the purpose that Autumn is talking about right there. Because you're trying to understand yourself because like part of you even if you don't have much experience with it, even if you're the only person in your family and in your social circle that has a mental health problem, when things start to go awry, like you fucking know something's wrong. You're not stupid. You know something's off. You know something's not making sense. So what do we, what do most of us do when that happens? We try to figure out what the hell is going on. And I think that that is part of it. Like there, I think that is a big part of the appeal of all those personality tests is that there's a lot of people out there that have mental health stuff going on or they have a history of mental health stuff in their families. And they're like, I just want to understand. I, I don't know what's going on. I, I want to see like, do I have issues? What's actually broken? Can it be fixed? Am I wounded? Am I okay? Is this normal? Like, I think that's a very typical healthy response for human beings to have when they know something is not quite right. I think one of the newer versions of this is actually the TikTok algorithm <laughs> based on some of the videos and the studies I've seen, you know, what you like and what you watch and what interests you. And you find a lot of people that are depressed and all of a sudden they have all these videos about depression or they're autistic and they didn't realize it. And they have all these, you know, videos about autism or even disassociative identity disorder. And all of a sudden you're like, so that's what's going on with me because you're finding ways to relate to others. As I'm not saying don't <laughs> use TikTok as a self-diagnosis tool, but it is one of the things out there that people are doing to be like, holy shit, I've been <laughs> autistic for 50 years and nobody knew it, but everything they're saying, and they do, they go in then and they find the money and they go into a doctor and the doctor's like, yeah, you've been autistic for 50 years. And like, well, TikTok just told me, should have known. <laughs> It is, it is kind of interesting because like I don't really do much with our TikTok account for the business. Like I'm not on TikTok very much. I'm more of an Instagram kind of girl. So most of the, the videos on TikTok, the algorithm is set up based on autumn. So when I do go on TikTok to upload a video, I'm like, okay, I'll scroll through a few of these and like I'll scroll through like 10 or 20 different videos and I'm like, yep, this is definitely autumn's algorithm. <laughs> So I think there is something to that. <laughs> <laughs> it is, you can tell. Um, but then once you once you learn about yourself, that's when that change comes in. And you're changing your perspective of yourself and you're changing your perspective of life because that's that's really what you have is you're changing those perspectives and you're changing the factors that you can. And I think one of the biggest things is vocabulary, whether this is vocabulary about life or vocabulary about self. 
your vocabulary is very, very important. There's actually an entire um, field out there or uh, theory called uh, narrative and it's narrative therapy. And they're talking all about how do you talk about yourself? How do you write your story? And then once you understand how you write your story, how do you rewrite it? And we are very word-based in this culture and we use a lot of words and the way you use words is important and it affects your perceptions and it affects your feelings. And so changing your vocabulary is vital. So I'm going to let Ivy speak to this because I know she hates it when I'm just like, well, you should just, you know, positive affirmations, right? That's all it takes, right, Ivy? It's just positive affirmations. You'll be good. The first time I went into therapy when I was 16, like they tried to do the positive affirmations thing with me. Like they gave me this printout with all of these little, uh, these little cards that had like positive affirmations and she wanted me to, you know, cut them up and put them all over the place so that I would see them every day. And I learned pretty quickly that just straight up positive affirmations did not fucking work for me because I would go into the bathroom and I'd be brushing my teeth and I would be reading this positive affirmation about, I am an amazing person and I will do wonderful things today. And I would look at that and I would think, well, that's a fucking lie because I'm not a wonderful person. I'm not going to do anything amazing today. I'm probably only going to fucking brush my teeth and I'm gonna crawl back into bed. And so I realized pretty quickly that positive affirmations in and of themselves did not help me. And I started playing around over the years with just vocabulary and what I learned for myself. And hopefully this will be helpful for somebody out there as well, is that I did not jump from my negative self-talk or my negative talk about mental health or whatever. I did not jump directly from that to the positive. Like I had to work to at first get slightly less negative and then just become neutral. I think it's important to go through those steps. And for some people, positive affirmations work great. So if that if that's working for you, fantastic. But if you're really struggling with that and you are brushing your teeth and you're reading that positive affirmation that says what, what an amazing person you are and you're supposed to repeat that to yourself and you can't get the words to come out of your mouth because it feels like such a bullshit lie, start small instead of being like oh i'm a terrible fucking person i'm just like garbage i'm trash i'm the worst person that ever lived i'm a piece of shit just be like okay i'm only allowed to insult myself in one way so today i am going to be i will just be a dumpster fire today that is the only insult i am allowed to give myself and then you move up from there and you get to a point where it's where it's just neutral and you're like i am a person and then you can get to a point where you're like, okay, I didn't do great at that, but I did better than I did before. And using vocabulary to help rewire those neural pathways and to reshape your perspective of yourself helps so much. Because mental health issues, it's getting to a point now where we are more accepting of it culturally, but there is still a stigma. And it is still uncomfortable for people to talk about. And whether we like it or not, we absorb those subliminal messages or those overt messages about the shame associated with having mental health problems. So even if you can just shift your vocabulary when you're talking about mental health 
and when you're thinking about it, that makes a big difference too. Because for years, for example, with my bipolar, I really railed against the idea that I could be bipolar. Because if I was bipolar, that meant that I was just like my mom and my mom was really fucked up, which meant I was really going to be fucked up and my whole life would be ruined and I would just do all of these terrible things. And like I got all of those messages in my head. And so I really railed against the idea that I could have bipolar disorder. Then when I finally accepted that that's at least part of what was going on with me and I started learning how to manage it, I really tried focusing on changing the way that I thought about it and changing the way that I talked about it to other people. And that's really reflected in a lot of the conversations that I've had about it because I have heard from so many people things along the lines of, man, I had a completely different view of it. I just thought that it was just like this terrible, horrible thing that nobody could ever get better from and they couldn't manage and like your life is just totally fucked. And I was like, well, yeah, because that is the narrative our society gives us in general about people with mental health problems. So I am very careful about the way I think about mental health issues and the way that I talk about them to treat it like it is just another facet of personality. It's just another thing that is part of you that you learn how to manage like anything else. And I think changing your vocabulary about that in the beginning, it's a bit of a battle to change the, the vocabulary that you're using. But in the long run, over time, if you are consistent in your efforts to change your vocabulary and change your perspective, it will reshape your worldview and it will reshape your perception of yourself to be something ultimately more positive and ultimately more accepting. I mean, if nothing else, right now, if you truly, truly hate yourself, just try to hate yourself a little bit less. If you just spend all day, every day talking shit to yourself, only allow yourself to talk shit to yourself for half the day. Work up slowly. If you despise yourself, it is not probably going to be effective to go from, I am a horrible piece of shit, terrible human being. I should just die because I'm worse than every dictator that's ever lived. And I'm like Satan incarnate. It's going to be hard to go from that to, I am a wonderful, amazing person and people love me because you don't believe that. So start small. Takes time. Like Hitler, go from like Satan to Hitler and then just like work your way up through the dictators until you get to somebody that's just a political figure and then go from there. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it, doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be politics based. It can be something else. Yeah, pick, pick your favorites, whatever, you know, it, it could be, you know, science fiction characters. You know, you go from being what the, what's his name? That it was the emperor or whatever. I don't know. I'm not a Star Wars person to like Darth Vader oh. and just like work your way towards neutral and then like positive until you become like Yoda. I don't know. Just you know, find find a system that works for you. Find a spectrum that works for you. Just you know, start start small. You're not gonna go. You're not gonna go from like Satan to God in a single day. Like it's just you're you're not you're not gonna be able to buy that. You're gonna know it's a lie. <laughs> both are both are lies, by the way. The truth is somewhere in the middle for all of us. So that's why I try to work towards the middle. I'm always working towards the middle. I I'm having a good day if I'm like I am a person. Here I am. This is me. That's what I work for every day. <laughs> no, that's 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 how you do it though. It is slow changes. I mean, these things do not happen overnight and it's changing those vocabularies. And I think also 
challenging a lot. It's with depression, I would say this is vital, is challenging a lot of those things that are going on in your head because depression does lie to you. Depression and the imbalances it causes fucks with your memory. It fucks with your feelings. It fucks with your thoughts. And you believe a lot of stuff that is just not true. Okay. So yeah, you may feel like you're the worst person in the world, or you may feel like this is never going to end, but those are lies is what they are. And so I think vital with depression is then also challenging some of that. You know, you change the vocabulary and that's one way of challenging it is refusing to just buy into the always and the never and the generalizations or the horrible or the wonderful. Another way is reality checks. You know, this is never going to end. Well, have you been depressed before? Well, yeah, three times. Did it go into remission? Yes. Is it likely to go into remission now? Probably. Okay. So you you find those reality checks. My my boyfriend absolutely hates me because I'm this, you know, horrible person and I'm ugly and I stink. Well, talk to them about it. Do they hate you? Do you stink? Smell yourself. Do you really smell? <laughs> you know, like go to the dog. The dog, if you if your genitals or pit smell, they're gonna be involved in that area a lot. <laughs> are they are they just happy to see you? Maybe you don't smell, but I'm saying reality checks. And also like getting outside of your routine and getting outside of your head, like we talked with the engagement, it's part of why it's so important. Because I know I have a bad habit, especially when I get stuck in my, my daily routine, is I turn mountains into molehills. Every little thing is like this huge thing. You know, I get an unexpected bill and it's like $20, but all of a sudden this unexpected $20 bill is going to leave me homeless and all my dogs are going to die and my boyfriend's going to hate me and say bad things about me why that doesn't make sense but because i'm so absorbed in this little world this little 20 dollars thing seems like you know this huge mountain when all it is is a tiny anthill and so you got to do those reality checks you got to get outside of yourself and you've got to challenge the shit that's going on inside of your head because it is shit is going on inside of your head yeah, and it's part of getting out of that prison that is your head is is also getting out of that echo chamber because that's what it is. If you only have your own input when you're depressed, you are setting yourself up for failure. We don't always want to hear from people that are like, oh, it's going to get better. You have to look at the bright side or that's just not that big of a deal. No, we don't want to hear those things. And it's not helpful to hear those things all the time because we do need some level of validation as well. We need somebody to say that like, yeah, what you're feeling right now is valid and it is hard and I get it. And, you know, I, I want to be there for you. Like that is helpful. But we also do sometimes need somebody from the outside to say, you are really taking this to an extreme. Can we try to scale it back? This is a more practical you know, perception of this. And I understand why it seems so overwhelming and like it's going to break you. I understand why it feels that way and why it seems that way because you are in this echo chamber of your head where every message that you're hearing is negative. But let me give you a different perspective from the outside. Let's temper that, that negative shitstorm in your head with something that is a little bit calmer, something that's a little bit more objective, something that's on the outside. And you do have to be careful about how you say that, but it's really important to get that outside input because we do make mountains out of molehills when we are depressed because it's all negativity and it's all the echo chamber and we're hearing the same tapes 
played over and over and over again in our heads. And that is not ultimately helpful. It, it's not. And I think it's important to also, you know, compare your mountains to other people's mountains sometimes as well. And I think one way I think we do a lot of this in, in, in our culture, which I think in some ways is good, though, perhaps exploitive. I'm not sure. Uh, in my day, it was Jerry Springer, used to be soap operas, reality TV, horror movies. You watch these entertainment things because they are so much worse than your life. Or, you know, not even on the entertainment side, volunteering. You know, if you do have that logical realization that you're like, you know, my life is not that bad, but you think it's this horrible thing, volunteering can sometimes help because then you do encounter people that are in such a, a worse situation than you. And you are able to get more perspective that your anthill really is an anthill. It's not a mountain. It feels like a mountain and that's understandable and valid, but it's not a mountain, which means you can't handle it. And it also gives you out there connecting with people and it gives you helping people, which makes you feel better about things. And challenging and change can also come in the form of therapy. You know, whether that's group therapy, one-on-one -on -one therapy, talking with a health coach, whatever that happens to look like, or even, you know, like we've said before, talking with a pastor, if you're religious, however that works. Therapy is a form of challenging and change. Sometimes, especially when we get too imbalanced, our teeter-totter just breaks and there's no way we can rebalance it on our own. And we've got to get that outside help. And sometimes that outside help also does mean medication for some of us. There's nothing wrong with that. When I used to work in counseling, and, and I would get a client that was extremely depressed and they could not move forward at all. That was one of the recommendations I did make in those therapy sessions was, what do you feel about medication? How could we move you towards this? Because it wasn't a, you're going to be on this medication forever. It was a, you are unable to make any changes in your life because what is going on physically with you is so big and so huge, we can't move forward. And I didn't have at that time the resources for naturopaths or functional medicine. And a lot of us don't have the resources to afford those things. And so if that's where we're at, medication is very a viable option. And even if you can't afford those things and you like the idea of medication because it is targeted and it is research and there are billions of dollars that have gone into making sure it works on this one little specific thing, even though it does have side effects, you get somebody that knows what they're doing and you can get that medication. And I've had clients where we start them off on an antidepressant and it doesn't quite work. And so they switch to another and that releases that feeling, that overwhelming burden of the depression, which means they're now able to actively participate in therapy. They're now able to actively make changes in their life. And as they make those changes, they're then able to decrease the medication and go off of it. So medication is always a, a valid option for any of those struggling with mental health. It's not something you have to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. But it is an option out there and you shouldn't feel ashamed either way if you want to take it or you don't. And I, I think on that note, too, with both medication and with therapy, it doesn't always mean forever either. And also, there may be times that even once you've stopped therapy or you've gone off of medication when you may need it again. And that is totally acceptable. And we should not think of that as backsliding. I have been in therapy a couple of times in my life. I probably would have been in it more often had I been able to afford it. But when I got into therapy this time, I did not think of it as backsliding because I looked at everything that I had done and all of the work I had done on myself and I realized I had hit a wall. I had plateaued on what I was capable of doing on my own and I needed help to get to the next 
level. I needed help getting closer to that core wound so I could actually work on healing it. I had issues that I was dealing with that I was ill-equipped to handle both internally, but also in my environment with people that I was close to. There is nothing wrong with going in and out of therapy over time, going on and off medication over time, as long as you are just be smart about it. You know, if you need the help, get the help. If you need the medication and you feel like that's the best route for you, then do that. And if just be mindful, if you are going to go off of psychiatric medications, do not attempt to do that shit cold turkey. Work with your practitioner to lower the doses until you can wean yourself off of it. If you want to try something else or you just don't want to be on meds anymore, that's that is a totally acceptable option, but going cold turkey off of a lot of psychiatric medication can be dangerous in a variety of ways, so be careful with that. But just because you're on medication right now or just because you're in therapy right now doesn't mean it's going to be forever. And it doesn't mean that if you have to go back to those things later on, that it means that you failed somehow or that you've been backsliding. It can just be that that next time when you go into therapy or when you go on the meds, there's something going on in your life that you just can't handle right now, or you have reached so deep into your own healing process that you've reached a point where you can't do it yourself and you need assistance from somebody who is actually trained to help you do that safely. And I think that's one of the final notes that I want we want to make today. And that is, like I've said throughout all of this, this episode, last episode, depression is it's a dysregulation. It's an imbalance. And Ivy just the other day was talking to me about a friend of hers that talked about not liking the word balance and preferring the word equilibrium it was. And I'd like you to talk to that uh, as our final note. The friend of mine in question, she's been a very influential person in my life. And I met her when I was in my early 20s. And I was so fixated on balance. I need to get in balance. Everything would be better when I'm in balance. And she listened for a while, for a few weeks. And then one day she looked at me and she said, you know, balance doesn't really last forever. And maybe equilibrium is really a more realistic thing to strive for. Because we tend to think of balance as being this permanent state. We get everything, the scales perfectly balanced, and then they will stay that way. But life is not like that. And neurochemistry is not like that. Things change and things go up and down and there's a cyclical nature to everything. And so being able to find this magical balance and maintain it indefinitely is not really possible. But equilibrium is finding balance in motion. It is being able to shift the scales as you need to. It's not looking for this magical balance that stays forever. It's being able to develop the skills and the confidence necessary so that when life throws you out of balance or your neurochemistry gets thrown out of balance, it doesn't destroy you because you know what you need to do to rebalance the scales. And it's always moving. It's always dynamic. It's very seldom straight across the board. And even when it gets to that point, that is very temporary. Things are always moving. So what's really important is to be able to stay, stay stable in motion. 
And she compared it to surfing because she used to do a lot of surfing when she was younger. And she was like, you're never totally balanced on that board. But you are able to stay stable in motion because after a while you develop the muscle memory that your feet move in a certain way and your hips move in a certain way and your arms and everything that you can readjust as necessary. And then when you fall off that board, you get right back on there, but you're falling off less because you're not trying to get perfectly balanced. You're learning the little adjustments that you need so that when life goes off kilter, you can roll with it. And I think that is what it is like to live with depression or to live with any sort of chronic mental health issue is that getting healed or cured of it is very, very unlikely. But what you can do is learn how to manage it. What you can do is learn how to prevent having as frequent of episodes, or you can learn how to minimize the damage from it. Like that's what it's all about. That's the equilibrium. We're not looking for a magical cure to come along. We are looking for ways to shift the scales so that we can feel competent and capable that we can shift those scales, that life throwing us off kilter and our neurochemistry throwing us off kilter does not break us down. It only allows us to build ourselves up further. I love that analogy for depression and for any mental health struggle, but especially for the idea of depression, because it is such that imbalance. And so with that, I think we need to wrap up for today. So I'm going to have you throw our listening audience, all of our happy, happy, connecty bits, finger guns, finger guns, connecty bits. Um, you can find us on Facebook as different functional. You can also find us on TikTok and Instagram as different underscore functional. You used to be able to find us on Twitter, but we both hate Twitter, so we're not going to do that anymore. And then uh, you can find you can find us at our website, www.differentfunctional.com. And if you would like to share with us any of your coping skills that you have developed for your depression, please do. You can do that on the website. There's a contact form on there. You can email us at differentfunctional at gmail.com. You can find us on social media and contact us there. And depending on where you're listening to this, you can leave a comment for us. And if you're going to leave a comment for us, it would be really sweet if you could also rate and review the podcast so we can get a little bit more exposure out there. So that would be, that would be nice. Maybe we're begging just a little bit for some rating and reviews, subscribe, you know, follow us, tell people about us might be begging just a little bit. Oh, I'm begging a lot. Beg, 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 beg. I'm like on my knees. I've got like the little pant. There's cat eyes, you know, like the Shrek cat, th those eyes just picture that right now. That's what we're asking total begging <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> anyways we will go ahead and wrap up today thank you all so much for listening we really appreciate all of you we definitely want to hear from you and as always remember different does not mean defective My mind.